Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula here with Hondo Gertz, and we're so excited for today's guest, Suzette Kent. Suzette served as an executive at Accenture, J.P. Morgan, Ernst & Young, among other companies, and it is someone I look up to so much as then having gone into government to serve as the federal chief information officer from January 2018 to July 2020, which was interesting times. I, I know there are a lot of stories there that we'll get into, and did things like establish the American technology Council and really focused on IT modernization in large enterprises, whether in government or in industry. So Suzette, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm excited for this conversation. <laughs> awesome to see you again, Suzette, and thanks for uh, joining us. Now, how does a gal from Texas, you would have thought with your background, you would have been born on Wall Street in New York, and how does a Texas gal become uh, such a leader in the IT space and, and turn into be the federal CIO? What's, where did you come from? How did you get to where, you know, doing all these amazing things? Uh, I'll try to make this fast, and I'm actually from Louisiana. And uh, the my whole entire path was literally because I was so curious about everything. I actually went to college intending to go into medical, ended up more graduating in journalism, but spending time with multiple languages and, and other types of things. And I started as a consultant because I didn't know what industry I wanted to work in. And that background as a consultant led me to, to enjoy doing tackling the toughest problems and doing things that hadn't been done before. Ended up spending more of my time in financial services because the problems that were to be solved then was national banking. When I started, it was still state banks only, and we were putting in national charters. And how do you serve a customer consistently at every location and across the footprint? We did crazy things like put checks on airplanes and fly them around. So how do we automate that? How do we take images and, and, and use that? And, and then companies, how about we go international? What does that look like? And, and how do we do that? Every now and then, had a little time with the regulators <laughs> and, and kind of large scale, big programs. But our financial services industry has cyber and data privacy and resiliency at the core. And so I built relationships with many technology companies. I've probably converted from or implemented about everything that's out there at some point, you know, over 30 years and built great relationships. And, and my time at J.P. Morgan, I had a lot of the um, government portfolios for SNAP, TANF, WIC, Medicare, Medicaid, and worked with states and built those kinds of relationships during the crisis. I met a lot of people that were definitely in government and had a, a, an opinion about financial institutions and um, eventually, in my time with EY, I worked in anti-money laundering and, um, and risk and third-party risk. So through all those different things, it was about tackling the challenge of the day. And um, I believe in service to this country. It's the greatest place there is. And so when the call came about, would you think about doing this? I thought, you know what? 
there's some definitely some challenges there that we that we haven't solved. And many of the vendors that service our largest global companies are the same vendors that are working in government. So a lot of it was the space I knew, and I was um, honored and thrilled to to be able to to give back some of the fantastic experiences I've had in service to the country. So all that time with regulators didn't scare you away from Washington. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it helped set my expectations of what it might feel like. So, yeah, but I, 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 um, I will avoid it if possible. <laughs> so what surprised you the most about leadership in government versus leadership in industry? You know, people ask me that question I'll, Frequently, and and so I've had times to answer it and, and get it right and answer it and not so. But here's what I've kind of crystallized it to: in private sector industries, the the person who's setting the strategy and setting the objectives is the same person who's dedicating the resources, whether that's people or money. In government, there are different people setting the objectives than those who are allocating the money. And therein adds all kinds of complexity. And and so the pace and the clarity that I was used to in the private sector does not exist, you know, in in the government. And in fact, um, you know, I would use the analogy with people of, you know, I'm running a sprint And in private sector, you know, there was the finish line. I ran straight for it. And when I had to run that sprint in government, I had to do an obstacle course while I was running the sprint because of all those different things. So the objectives are the same. The goals, you know, that all the but the process is so much more complicated and unfortunately not always value added. Yeah. So I'm sure you. You were able to take some of your experience trying to trying to modernize a very regulated industry, you know, often DODs compared to auto industry or <laughs> or some other. Um, did you find the regulation of it was this, was there the same kind of regulatory challenges or even worse because you're trying to self regulate uh, your, your own sets of organizations? <laughs> There were a lot of similarities. You know, anytime that you have legacy technology and custom built technology and and things that have evolved over time, you have the same kinds of challenges. Um, I said the vendors were the same. So the actual technology itself was was very similar. Um, How you made decisions about what to change, what to move to. Those things, you know, were were different. And um, it, it. the modernization process is actually the same. The the parts that were hard in government, again, kind of got back to that funding and multi-year commitments to do certain things. And that's that's difficult, you know, in government to do things that that moves across multiple years. And especially things sometimes in modernization where you don't see immediate benefit. And if you're not delivering benefits today, sometimes People get less interested. Um, so those were some, those were kind of just some of the things that were similar and different. Yeah, we we often talk about you know how do we get our digital competitiveness up as a, a nation, both in large enterprise industry, you know, small industries, and then government. What do you have any you know, like? What were the 
two or three things you saw were kind of successful in all of those. One was aligning, you know, resource allocation with decision authority. Were, were there other things you saw that kind of carried across any of these large enterprise transformation efforts? Oh. You know what? I, I talked about, you know, making impact places where we made impact. So in, in cases where we digitized paper forms and citizens were their feedback was like, this is great. This is faster. Those were meaningful um, in the, you know, the VA collapsed, you know, a whole lot of, you know, websites into to singular websites and that 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 was, you know, significantly better for the Department of Labor. We were able to digitize the process to get um, workers into certain roles, things that had taken months in the past. We could do, you know, very, very quickly. Those were really exciting. Um, and for all the many negative things that happened during COVID, what, one of the things that was very positive was technologies that we had in place to support a hybrid workforce or to deliver services in a digital manner that were maybe small and, and not used or under pilot. We scaled them all the way, and I hope we never go back. And the success of those was thrilling because the technology from a technology perspective, we knew it would work. It was about the people adoption. And it was about, you know, I'm used to doing it this way and I really don't want to use that new, you know, thing. Or even in serving citizens, meeting their expectations. So those were some of the things that I, I think took our digital capabilities and, you know, power charged them. Uh, on the people adoption, we talk about culture off, often as a barrier on on our show. So it's interesting to hear your experience with COVID and maybe something we'll come back to on the culture piece. But while on the topic of COVID, I wonder if you could tell us about those first few weeks. Like what happened? Any stories? H- how did you deal with that? Yeah, um, I, I, that experience was one of the... Um, hardest, but it was also one of the ones that was um, probably most fulfilling and impactful. One of the things when I came into the federal government, only 33% of agencies had a common email system, a cloud-based email system, or collaboration tools. And I came out of industry, and I was like, what? <laughs> right? This is, we, we probably tackled that, you know, a decade ago. And that was one of the priorities. And I had some people externally kind of saying, like, are you setting the bar low? I said, um, basic work tools should be an expectation of every federal employee. So, no, I'm trying to get the basics right. Yes, we have some big lofty goals, but we're trying to get those basics right. And, you know, credit to the entire CIO council and some tiger teams. I borrowed a few from other agencies who'd done well and brought them in. And those tiger teams went around and ensured that we moved everybody up the scale. And that I actually had one agency secretary say to me, I can't even email people in my own agency because there's 41 different email systems. And so we did all that work. And, you know, that's not the glamorous, sexy stuff. You know, maybe it wasn't anything that was in the press. But when COVID happened, because every one of the agencies had done that and they'd taken it to heart, we had we started having daily sessions. I had sessions with all the CIOs and their teams from every agency multiple times a day. Here's what's happening. Here's what we're going to do. Um 
and how we were going to move into the virtual environment, that investment in tools allowed us to do that because it was a basic, it was a very basic tool. And we were ready and we worked together. And like I said, every single day, multiple times a day, you know, there were EOs and things like that. And I, I, I actually got some um, senior executives to, to use a digital signature on some of the things. So I was like, yeah, you know, yay, we made progress. We didn't sign a piece of paper and pass it around an agency. So necessity drove adoption, but it, it, it the um, collaboration and focus that the CIOs and CISOs from all the agencies had had really paid off. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was something that was an incredible experience, but it was, when people say government can't move fast, absolutely not. You can when you have to. Think about, you know, the economic impact payments, the PPP loans, and taking the largest workforce in the world virtual. We did it. Mm -hmm. And we did it in days and so so a few of those hours. (laughs) And it, it proved, you know, when you focus and you get a great team all on board together and get it done. And so it was, a, it was a great experience. And I think there's so much to learn from it too, especially this piece about necessity driving adoption or to look at that period of time and how much it sped up digitization of so many agencies. But maybe now I can ask my question about the culture piece too. As a leader, you talked about in the beginning, people setting priorities aren't necessarily the folks setting budget or some of the disconnect there. Do you think more acquisition reform is needed? We, we typically talk about it in a DOD sense, but from where you sat or is the majority of the hurdle around adoption cultural? Like what's your take on culture versus policy? <laughs> it's some of both. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when you hit on a point on, you know, acquisition, and I do think acquisition reform is needed in many cases to look at um, buying and acquiring capabilities in line with the life cycle. Technology moves faster. When I, If I'm going to buy a table, table's not going to change that much, right? If I'm going to buy technology, what I'm buying today is going to be different in six months. And so a, a different level of nimbleness. We, we've talked a lot about, cy- or, you know, cybersecurity is a big um, point right now. Ensuring that security is is part of and the when we ask people to buy American and have secure products that we buy that way as a government we don't waive those requirements those are things you know that that we should do um, and the you know under the alignment of how money is allocated versus how it is spent and how benefits are recognized i know when um i, I had the honor of lighting up the tmf right and, and actually establishing the process and beginning up the law had passed literally i held the meeting the third day after i was sworn in and um that you know process is very um different but it was it was put in place to help provide funding at the pace of technology. And one of the questions I asked someone is like, so what what does the benefits recognition look like? And and they were like, What do you mean by that? What's the time I said, what's the timeline of the spend versus when we're gonna see benefits and how those match up? It's a core part of TMF. It was not an exercise that many of the agencies and financial teams were used to doing. 
in that way. So, so we actually kind of got to change the paradigm about how we talked about it, but and I've been thrilled to see the success that you know the the current federal CIO and team have had since they got a billion dollars, and um, <laughs> but it's helped agencies actually move the ball. So that was a good, you know, kind of a great example of acquisition and funding moving at the pace of the objectives you're trying to to achieve. So many of our listeners may not be familiar with, you know, serving in the government, some will, uh, and they may not be familiar with the leadership challenges in a position like you have, uh, accountable for everything, but maybe not responsible for all the agencies. And, and you know, when you, you talked a little bit about cyber and, you know, how to, how to help work with, influence, cajole, um, align all of these different agencies operating with different visions. How did you attack that problem from a leadership perspective? Because that's a little bit different, I would imagine, than being an industry where the lines of accountability are a little bit more clear cut. How did you know? Did that kind of surprise you when you came in? And and maybe when were some of the styles you used to try and um, work your way through the controlling, aligning, uh, all the all the other things you do in these kind of shared leadership uh, kinds of positions. Well, I started my career as a consultant, right? And and the great part about being a consultant is that you're often brought in on the really big strategic things that matter. So you have to spend a lot of time understanding the stakeholders and understanding you know who who's involved. And in any of these things, I'd I'd kind of follow that and human nature of why. What is the why? Why is this group going to be motivated or not motivated? Um, and, and how do we do this in a way that everyone's successful and that, that, that we can see visible wins and that's going to kind of encourage us to go on? And I here, here was one of my first lessons, though. And it, um, we, we had a particular location where um, they'd moved everything to the to the cloud and we'd automated a bunch of tasks and we made from a technology perspective you know we had a great success on the series of projects from an efficiency perspective it's more efficient and the workforce was happy and and then I went to talk to one of the representatives for that region and I'm like you 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 want we're going to celebrate this do you want to come and he said well, you you look at that as a success, but I see that as you don't need more jobs. Mm. And it was an interesting lesson for me in that, huh, I, I really have to think about everyone's perspective. And some of the work, uh, we did a lot of work on shared services. They still are, but, you know, actually some of the, the structure that we used for shared services was um, a, a memo and a process that I was deeply involved with. And that is, you know, for, for folks who aren't in the government stuff every day, it's doing the common things across every agency, you know, at a central point instead of having every agency have to do their own. And as I went and visited many of the sites who provide things for, like, example, we have five payroll systems and 124 time and attendance systems, you know, or at least that was the numbers then. Um but we all have to follow the same rules. Like, is there efficiency opportunity if we consolidated those? Um, but there were some who weren't interested in that because it was a big workforce in a certain region. Or it was, you know, this group of software that, you know, was homegrown in my state or my town or, you know, 
or, oh, well, we've always done it this way and I, I want to spend my money on something else. There were a lot of reasons, you know, of why not. So the the public sector and private sector thing that is exactly the same is figure out why someone cares. And and if you actually can answer that question, maybe you should be asking if you should be doing it anyway. That's a good one. And something that comes up often when we talk about str- strength and collaboration, it's translation and mm-hmm. improved communication and, and just closer ties between the public and private sectors. Uh, you mentioned cyber. Honda mentioned cyber. So I want to um, get your reaction. The White House just released last week their new cybersecurity strategy. Any thoughts on top lines or takeaways there? Well, um, first, I'm, I'm thrilled that it's another, it, this is our third, and it's continuing to raise the bar, right? And that's important. Um, and it sets some objectives that are going to give us, create the reason to convene and continue the conversation about uh, things like ensuring that products are secure by design and ensuring that cybersecurity is not just for those who can afford it, um, making you know tools more widely available. And those are all great things. Um I'm looking forward to a lot of the conversations, but and I think there's going to be a lot more to come, you know, in the implementation side mm-hmm. and the tactics of how we achieve some of those things. And like I said, I'm I'm glad it's out, and now I'm ready for the next you know, series of how do we get this done. Yeah, that's um, it'll be really interesting when you've you know in your role, particularly as a federal CIO, you were probably you know also exposed to a lot of technologies, companies wanting to bring you things. Um, What were some best practices you found when companies would come talk to you, um, you know, in terms of how they could be successful trying to get their message across? What, what, what was meaningful to you to discuss with them versus what was just, uh, you know, interesting, but perhaps irrelevant uh, to what you were working on? How, you know, any advice you'd give to those either small or big companies engaging with the, with the government folks? I'm smiling as you say this, because if anyone who's listening who um, ever came to see me, this is going to resonate with them. I, I literally had a board that I kept behind me all the time that had all the priorities, um, the things that were in the PMA, you know, d- d- and executive orders. And I said, if you're not going to talk to me about something that's on that board, we're wasting each other's time. And then I would ask them things like, did you read the, the data strategy? Did you read the cyber strategy? Did you read the last EO? Did you did you look at the agency's strategic plan? And, and even today, when I work with different folks, they'll say, oh, I'd love to do work for this agency. And I'd say, did you read their strategic plan? <laughs> did you look at their objectives? And if they can't say yes to those things, like, okay, call me when you have. Call me when you have something relevant about solving the problems that are my priorities. And and not being trite, but it is as simple as that. And and companies that would come and they were kind of like, you know, on the they were repeating verbatim what was on their, you know, like marketing sheet, that's not helpful to anyone. And if you want to be a solution provider in government, but also if you wanted to talk to anyone in the private sector, bring the story about how what you can do will help them achieve their agenda. 
Yeah, I think the other thing I noticed over time, you know, as, as you get more senior, yeah, you get a little bit removed from the day-to-day decisions. And so I would also, you know, is, you know, remember the person you're talking to and the problems she or he is facing, not what you might do for a lower level program decision or something, which is outside you know, the purview. So, you know, understanding where you're pitching product versus where you're pitching idea or concept, I think, yeah. is also important. I would also laugh sometimes, too, because as the federal CIO, I really had no money, <laughs> right? And and I was obligated, right? It was it's, it's a policy role, you know, but but deeply involved with all of the agencies um, and how they use technology. But I didn't buy anything, you know, myself. And in fact, if I took a meeting with any agency or, or I mean, with any software provider. I had to provide equal access. That was actually to to anyone else. So if I talked to one, I had to talk to their other 30 friends, right? So it, it they were very purposeful conversations, but focused on, you know, what are you going to do that can help the federal enterprise? And, and it's interesting. So you went into the role pre-COVID, you came out post-COVID, how how would you how has the industry changed now that you've seen industry kind of in in both roles? You, is are they different in the way they're attacking these problems? Maybe than when you were with industry prior to your government service. The the one big so, so yes the one big shift I've seen in industry and um, even in lots of across different sectors is they're still trying to figure out this workforce you know situation too. So whether it's remote or you call it hybrid or it's in the office these days, and like what, how, how do you ensure that you have the same productivity and the same types of outcomes that you're trying to achieve? But when the workforce mix is different, um, we also saw across lots of different industries, but specifically technology, when, when jobs were remote, People moved to the place they wanted to live versus being, you know, very close to maybe a a primary location of this or that. And um, that has manifested itself in in very different ways. In some cases, area uh, companies that were more remote had um, access to skill sets that they never had before. And in some cases, um, others reached in and grabbed that talented population out of places. So the workforce has been significantly more dynamic. Uh, I've also seen in industry, and and it was funny, I turned on the news this morning, there was a story about the same thing here in Washington, um, the valuing experience versus necessarily you know, a a formal college education, and and again in technology, looking at certification programs because the the it moves so quickly. How important it is for somebody new or even somebody who's in the workforce that wants to to continue to evolve. And you know, for a while, some of the technologies I won't say were were stagnant because te- technology already always changes, but they weren't changing at the pace that it is today. And, you know, I've seen some shifts, you know, to that as well. And there is every, it doesn't matter what the industry is, delivery of things by digital um, platforms and, you know, whether it's mobile or 
online, in many cases, has shifted to their primary uh, channel, which I'm now seeing that um, ripple through considerations for whether it's, you know, footprint of buildings, work schedules, or how they approach things like collaboration and design. I want to come back to talent, but first uh, on the piece about remote work and spreading out, there was this worry at first that this would complicate the cybersecurity threat environment. And so you talked about more of the policy side and the strategic approach to cybersecurity. What's your take on the um, current state from a security posture, especially as we think about the industrial base or critical infrastructure? Are we keeping up and maintaining the threat pace or where, where are we on that front? It certainly complicated the environment and increased the threat mm-hmm. um, surface. Mm-hmm. And we're keeping up in some spaces, but if we continue, you know, in this environment, we're going to have to do and And I believe we will. Um, there are other things that we're going to have to do to heart because many groups, they, they harden their security based on a physical place right think think about you know the way that we do you know command centers or things like that right it, it, it's it's based on that and we have to change those protocols we can it's just it's another technology project and it's changing behaviors so i'm actually seeing some of that in private sector especially in places where um someone is dealing with um, personal and identifiable information or healthcare information, and they are working remotely. And I'm seeing changes to those protocols in both their technology, you know, and the the authorized activities that they can perform. Mm -hmm. It's good to hear because um, as we talk about a lot on our show, innovation and really the front lines of this national security environment right now are within the private sector. So it it seems like there's greater awareness thanks to efforts um, like yours to do that. There's sometimes greater funding, too. (laughs) (laughs) On talent, what's your take on how to drive more talent towards tech towards service any thoughts on that <laughs> um i i i feel like i beat this tom tom time like I'm, I'm always talking about this, this topic and i use the analogy in another discussion about you know the movie you know everything anywhere all the time you know it just every, every single thing um i i there are so many pathways, and I was so glad that the National Cybersecurity Strategy around cyber actually used the word pathways. There are so many pathways into technology roles um, that we it's exciting, but we have to invest in all of them at the same time. And we have to generate interest in a very different way. And explain the parts of the job that are actually really exciting and, and interesting. And that often means exposure at earlier ages, you know, and that's in the the K through 12 um, kind of environment to say, hey, this is a career path that a diverse population can be very successful at. And, And these are these are fantastic jobs. Here's the art of the possible, right, to get them interested. But we also have to create on ramps and those could be. um technical schools. They could be traditional higher ed. They could be certification programs. Uh, They could be 
continuous learning programs that are in different companies and in companies, individuals who are in technology roles. When, you know, I looked at the, the duration of tenure of many federal employees and the fact that the federal government spent so very little on continuing education in that space. That's not what you experience in the private sector. It's not what we should experience, you know, in the in the federal government. But even incredibly talented technologists would tell you today that the pace of stuff that's coming at them, like they have to keep consuming something new, new, new. So we have to, to, to get people interested in new and creative ways. We have to reach into all kinds of, you know, populations that might not traditionally consider a technology career. We have to provide learning pathways to, to start that cross many, many, you know, different areas and we have to ensure that those who are already in the profession continue to get the training they need and the motivation to stay. Yeah, I think, you know, demonstrating and showing the pathways and in, in, in many cases, um, people don't understand actually the opportunities that are in front of them because it's not, you know, it didn't come from their their experience or their family's experience or their friend's experience. Yeah. Uh, and the way technology is changing, um, you know, you don't have to be a PhD in computer engineering to be, you know, a valued part of the cyber workforce. I mean, there's lots of different activities that way. Um, you you mentioned early on this idea of curiosity, and I'm, and I'm struck every time we get together uh, by two traits you really have. One is curiosity. And the other is, I would say, uh, enthusiasm, right? Getting fired up for things. How? Where? Where did that? Did that? You know, you you get that by nature uh, there in Louisiana. <laughs> I was going to make a Texas joke about Louisiana, but I'll let that go. Or, yeah, how, how would that? You know, how are those traits for you? You know, kept you fired up and moving in. And I don't know if you had mentors that helped you along the way, or you just it was natural to you. But how have you? You know, leverage that, I would say, is you've kind of gone through your very successful career. Yeah, you packed a whole bunch into that question. Um, I've always been curious by nature. I have been very um, lucky and blessed with many mentors and or just people who would say, go ahead and chase that. Had some latitude to, to pursue something and... I genuinely get excited solving problems and challenges and it, it, it's motivating. It's exciting. It, you know, it, it's one of the reasons that, you know, coming into government was something that it was a risk. I was, I was in a wonderful place. I had a phenomenal, you know, I've had a phenomenal career in the private sector. I was doing cool things and this was like kind of a total change, but it was an opportunity to make an impact and to do something. And I, I do get enthusiastic about every time there's a conversation or a chance, you know, to, to, to solve the problem. And the reason I stay in this space and why I do think it's for everybody is um, it, it, if you are curious there's always something going on. There's something interesting. And you, know, you talked about you don't have to be, you know, a PhD in computer science. You could be a digital a visualization person, you digital design, you know, a detective. All those types of things are skill sets that you need. 
you know, in delivery of technology and cybersecurity and finding the bad guys. Well, those traits, I think, are contagious. So we're so glad to have the chance to have you tell your story on our show because we want to encourage more cross-pollination between the public sector and the private sector. So thank you, Suzette, so much for joining us and your, your passion for service to country as well. Thank you. This was really fun. I appreciate it. You're awesome. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.